Uh, David asked me to introduce myself, which is good because I'm my own biggest fan. Uh, my name is Jason Michelli. I'm a pastor outside of Washington, D.C. at Aldersgate United Methodist Church. Uh, as my bishop likes to complain, I'm Methodist in name only, uh, which is why I'm here. Uh, uh, I blog at a, a blog called tamecynic.org. Um, I have a book called Cancer is Funny. I wouldn't ordinarily self-promote, but my editor's sitting there, and I'm terrified of him. Uh, so I wrote a book called Cancer is Funny, uh, and why that's important is because as I uh, came out of a, a year of chemo, I wanted to uh, spend time with friends um, that I'd neglected, and so I started a podcast. Uh, and so if you're wondering, is it possible to podcast without quoting Robert Capon? Uh, you can listen to Crackers and Grape Juice. Uh, and part of having a podcast uh, is that when you live with incurable cancer, people can't say no to you. Uh, and one of those people was Fleming Rutledge. Uh, and so over the last few years, we've done a number of podcast conversations with Fleming Rutledge. Uh, she's my preaching muse. Uh, she's become a friend. I have, in several online contexts, confessed my infatuation with her. Uh, I frequently refer to her as my backup wife. Uh, so my wife is very nervous about what's about to happen. Uh, I think the prayer book calls this an occasion for sin. Uh, but I want you all to give Fleming a warm welcome up. Dave, how much time do we have? All right. I mean, he can order pizzas and we'll be here. What did he uh, say? Um, so Fleming, uh, yesterday morning, Reverend Blackman uh, preached on Romans 7:14, And then last night, Alan Jacobs talked about Beverly Caventa. Um, and I thought those two talks provided an interesting intersection for you uh, because how Beverly would read Romans 7 is she would want to expand it to an apocalyptic framework where the reason the law cannot save us is because it's not just that we're sinners, it's that the law has been co-opted by an enemy with a capital E uh, and that we're not just individual sinners, we are all captives to a power that is not God. Uh, and so I'm wondering if for all of us here you can talk about uh, how we can be gracious and humble and compassionate in a divided culture because of that apocalyptic framework the New Testament gives us. Holy smoke. You know, I was so completely wrapped up in what Alan was talking about that it's hard for me to make a shift instantaneously. I think I can work toward that, but I have to say a, a couple of things about Alan's, uh, the, the lights are so bright I can't see you right there, but I know Alan's over there somewhere. Um, 
that was a sermon, especially the part where you unfolded all of the things where Jesus said, what is that to you? That was so powerful. I will, from now on, um, go back to that selection of texts that you gave us as a way of, and this would be a hook into what you're leading to. Um, and the whole idea of the arc of history, the arc of salvation history, some people would call it, um, but I would prefer to put it into the apocalyptic framework, uh, like my very good friend Beverly Gaventa, who had the same teachers as me, and we think very much alike. Um, since, since a couple of people have mentioned their books, I will uh, do so. Uh, I'm always a little hesitant to be so self-promoting, although I don't know why I would be, because everybody probably thinks I'm self-promoting anyway. But um, <laughs> I have a brand new book coming out called, what is it called? <laughs> the Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the actual name of the book is Advent, but the subtitle is what's important. Advent, the once and future coming of Jesus Christ. And in that book, uh, which is a collection of sermons, basically, and a few essays, but the idea is, and I try to say this in the introduction, I don't know how well I say it, it's not probably my best effort, but um, I'm trying to say exactly what Alan, well, maybe not exactly, but I'd like to try to say exactly what Alan said, that the Christian story is this vast, cosmic narrative, a mythic structure, if you will. C.S. Lewis understood that so well. Tolkien understood that so well. That's why they remain important. Um, the story we have to tell is so huge that it really is very distressing to see it in so much of today's um, evangelistic ministries narrowed down to these small, not very imaginative directives toward the individual person as that individual person is right then and there in his or her very small, and I conclude myself, very small self rather than implotting, that's the word I got from Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer. Um, no, I got it from Charles Marsh, who was talking about Fannie Lou Hamer. And if you don't know who Fannie Lou Hamer is, I recommend more than any other book this year, I recommend Charles Marsh's book, um, God's Long Summer. It's a, it's a, I call it a theological thriller. It tells the story of the civil rights movement from a theological point of view, and I would say in, in, as part of the great arc that Alan was talking about, the great arc of human history under God, the great arc of God's history with us, and before that <laughs> and after that, um, and plotting, that's the word Charles Marsh uses about how Fannie Lou Hamer plotted the civil rights movement within the great narrative of God's plan. And that's what I think we should all be doing. 
So that sermon, that sermon plus address that Alan just gave was soul-filling in a way that I haven't felt for a while. It was just food and drink, vitamins, protein, and I hope that we can all meditate upon it. All right, Romans 7. Now, you know, there's so much debate. There continues to be so much debate about Romans 7. Is Paul talking about himself before his conversion or after it? Is he describing, is he describing the daily plight of the Christian, the Christian who has, quote-unquote, been saved, been saved, um, in, is it 34 AD? I thought it was 33, doesn't matter. Uh, saved <laughs> on a hill outside Jerusalem in whatever it was, AD. That is when we were saved, and I've always loved that. I didn't even know that Bart said it. I just knew it was a great quote. Um, I don't know whether this will go over well at Mockingbird. I am in the camp that, and I've studied this. I studied. I made a point of studying this when I was in seminary and after, of, of, of digging into all of the different interpretations of Romans seven and trying to figure out which one I thought was closest to what Paul said and what Paul wants us to know. And one of the most trenchant things that was said to me about Romans 7 was that it should always be read in tandem with Romans 8. They shouldn't be read separately. Romans 7 and Romans 8 have to be read together, particularly the first part of Romans 8. Everybody knows the last part. The first part of Romans 8, where Paul is talking about being dead and buried with Christ in baptism, that goes with chapter 7. It's really too bad that there's a division between the two chapters so that we talk about Romans 7 and Romans 8. It's really a one piece. So I believe that the... Now, I don't know exactly how Beverly would put this. I've got her book, um, When in Romans, such a clever title. Her uh, small, very accessible commentary on Romans. I have it right on the top of my desk, but I haven't read the whole thing, and I haven't gotten to the part about Romans 7, so I'm going to wing it in a sense. Um, when Paul says, the good I would do is not what I do. The evil I would not do, that is what I do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on and talks about baptism and being dead and raised with Christ. Um, I do not believe there will ever be a day in this life that we cannot say, that we will not say, that we will not say, the good I want to do is not what I do. The evil I do not want, that is what I do. I think if we ever got to the point where we thought we didn't need to say that anymore, we would be in danger. So, mockingbird people, I want to underline that. But I also want to say, uh, Jason gave me these questions typed out and I didn't even look at them. Why did, you, you shouldn't have told so, them that. Is you it, should, huh? You shouldn't have told them that. Why? It's just, just you're doing great. <laughs> well, I don't, just... Don't invite criticism. 
I, I want to explain, though, that I, um, I'm 80 years old, and I have a little trouble sometimes finding my words and keeping my train of thought straight. And I want you to know that this is not a prepared presentation. So if I hesitate in a way that I didn't used to even 10 years ago, that's the reason. The reason I didn't look at the questions is that I was so relieved that I didn't have to prepare anything. <laughs> I wrote, in, in Holy Week, I preached seven, 11 new sermons. I'd written and preached 11 new sermons. And I'm completely exhausted mentally. So I just want you to know that. And I'm so thankful I didn't have to prepare anything. So if I'm hesitating a little bit, I can't even quote Romans 8 by memory the way I would like. But I'm sure you can pick up, I hope you can pick up what I'm getting at, that they go together. So that, um, in fact, if you could get Romans 8 up there, the first part of Romans 8, is that possible? Or maybe, all right. I, I, yeah. We have well, Bibles in the pews. Maybe just... somebody could stand up and read the first part of Romans 8. I nominate Sarah Condon. That, yeah, you've got a great voice, Sarah, for which I'm extremely grateful because in addition to everything else, I'm very She's like else, a before picture of you. What? She's like a before and after. <laughs> a long time after. Sure. Yeah, if you come up here, then I can hear you too. I'm so grateful to Sarah because she's so audible. Well, listen, I can't hear, I, I could hear Alan too. I, I don't go out to meetings very much anymore because I can't you hear. You know this is an Episcopal church though because nobody took out their Bibles right now. <laughs> did you see that? Nobody did. How much do you want her to read? Oh, um, just the first few verses. Until it comes to, a, 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 when you feel the paragraph has come to an end. Okay. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you want me to keep going? A little more. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Thank you, Sarah. Actually, I, I realize now that I was, when I was talking about baptism, I think it was Romans 6. It's the it's the Sarah, can you come back here, please? No, I, I meant eight as well. Eight is the one that needs to be bound together with um, seven. Because when Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's one of the key verses in the Bible. 
and at Grace Church, when Grace, before Grace Church moved over here, <laughs> we, that was one of the verses that Paul Zoll taught us to love. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But here's the apocalyptic framework. There is a new situation now. And here I'm a Calvinist rather than a Lutheran. The law is no longer our enemy. I know a lot of people here don't agree with that. But this is, this is what I have come to believe. That the law, instead of becoming our enemy and our, and, and our judge who condemns us to hell, the law becomes our friend, our guide, our teacher. And because we are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit, something happens in us by virtue of our baptism, Romans 6, in which the, the death to the flesh has, occurs in us on a regular basis by the power of the Spirit. Not because we are trying to be virtuous or because we are trying to cultivate righteousness, but because the Spirit of the living God has been given to us and is active in us and works within us every day and will continue to work within us every day in this life until we're called home. And I have found this to be a most important and liberating part of the gospel. Fleming, it seems... It seems to me, I guess, in what Sarah read uh, in Romans 8, where Paul talks about the powers of sin and death, that one of the overlap points between you and a lot of what Mockingbird focuses on, um, so what, what Mockingbird calls law, um, you get at by talking about the principalities and powers, um, and sin with a capital S, and death with a capital D. Can you unpack that a little bit? That's, this is one of the reasons that um, when I found Jason, or Jason found me uh, by the working of the Spirit uh, a few years ago. Match.com. What? <laughs> Just an, an inappropriate joke. Darn it, I, I didn't hear it. Tell me later. Um, I'm glad you said that because it recovered me to the point that I know you would like me to try to make, or at least the area that you would like to move me toward. Um, now, I see I've lost my train of thought because I was so flustered about not hearing the joke. Tell me again. <laughs> what, the principalities and powers, yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yes. You see, if you think of sin with a capital S, the rather than individual misdeeds that you do or acts that you commit or wicked thoughts that you have, if you think of sin with a capital S as a great power, second only to God, sin and death, a lot of Pauline scholars, including Beverly Gaventa um, and many others, now habitually capitalize sin and death, those two words, to indicate their status as powers, capital P. So we have 
powers and principalities. You can capitalize principalities also if you want to, although I don't usually do that, but powers, the, the powers of sin and death are personified symbolically in the figure of Satan. And the figure of Satan is everywhere in the New Testament. There is not one book of the Bible that does not assume the presence of Satan, the enemy, also called sin and death. And the law has become captive, or was captive, to sin and death. Paul says that quite explicitly. But in the crucifixion, and this is what I try to do in that very, very, very long book, I try to show that there are two overarching ways of thinking about what Jesus is doing, what God is doing on the cross. And they are not contradictory, contradictory to one another, and they do not cancel one another out. They complement one another, and I do not believe we should have one without the other. It's, it's not completely accurate to try to put them in two categories. It's convenient and helpful. I don't think it's sufficient. The two categories that I have identified are the Christus Victor theme and the atonement theme. And I think they're both equally important and they complement and act together, complement one another and act together. And I don't think the story is complete without both of them. So when people say, I'm reading your book on the atonement, I tend to say, well, now, wait a minute. It is about the atonement and I have a big chapter on the substitution. And I argue very strongly against all the people in the mainline churches are saying, oh, we don't believe in the atonement anymore. We've gotten away from that. Um, and that's a very prominent theme in the mainlines, as many of you probably know. Um, so I'm always quick to say that I mount as strenuous a defense of the, of the substitution theme as I possibly can. But at the same time, I spend as much time and energy on proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified as the victor over the power of sin and death, which is a different theme, a different way of saying that Christ has accomplished this cosmic action, this action that has changed everything that is the hinge of history, that renders everything before it and everything after it in a completely new light by which we live. And I have tried in my Advent book, since it's just a sermon collection, it's not a through book, unfortunately. I don't have the energy left, but I've tried to show that if the Christian church lives according to its own liturgical calendar, it changes the way you live in the world out there. You take it with you. Living through the rhythm of the church seasons in an intentional way, I believe, is one of the very most helpful and most transformative ways of entering into the great story of creation, fall, and redemption. So Fleming, that, that's a, that makes me think that where we're living as Christians now is in a perpetual state of Advent. 
Um, well, interestingly, Bart said that. Bart said huh. that the church has no other, lives in no other place or season than that of Advent. And Auden, beloved Doug H. Auden, his, his Christmas oratorio, which is beloved so much by so many Christians, the name of it is The Time Being. The time between, the time between the first coming of Jesus Christ, which is told by the church every year liturgically, so, so if we're and in, his second coming. So if we're in this period of Advent, that, that Advent gets at the not yet quality of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And the so, now and the not yet. So, and so how can that not yet inform how we act towards others with grace? Well, I have tried really hard in all my work to show by giving examples how that happens. Sarah's given some examples this morning about um, how people who thought they had everything and didn't need anything suddenly found themselves on the receiving end. That's a very good example of the way in which Christians are taught through suffering and through, um, through the assaults of the enemy. I got that phrase out of the prayer book. I've forgotten where it comes through all, from all assaults of the enemy. Good Lord, deliver us. See, that's the apocalyptic framework. It's everywhere once you learn to look for it. The assaults of the enemy, that doesn't really mean, oh, I'm tempted today to look, to look at, uh, this is one of my big temptations. I go to look at my Twitter account instead of <laughs> reading, a, reading a, the book I'm supposed to, that I want to read. I really, the good I would do is not what I do. The, the book I've got right there that I want to read is not what I do. What I do is look at my Twitter notifications. Um, but if you understand yourself to be living as part of this enormous arc of redemption and that every little victory, however tiny, is a sign that the spirit in you is active and working and the important thing is that the principalities and powers sin and death cannot win they cannot win in the great cosmic plot and they cannot win in any of you as you are a baptized Christian as you are here gathered together the Christian community as you look to the Word of God for life and health, you are already victorious because the spirit of Jesus Christ is victorious in you. And so to see life as a painful struggle against lapses and outright disobedience, which happens in us every day, we can really give it up to the Lord and say, I'll be here again tomorrow, because he'll be there again tomorrow. He's already there. He's ahead of you. He is already doing those good works. How does it go? 
do all good works as thou, such as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. It's so much better than the old prayer book. Do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. The good works are already out there, prepared for you to step into them. I love that. It's so freeing. It's a way of understanding the work of the Spirit. It's a poor analogy, but I, it's the only one I've been able to come up with. It's like when you step onto those moving tracks at the airport and they carry you and your luggage and you can walk faster on them too. I think of it a little bit like that. I but, always fall down on those. <laughs> well, that's part of the apocalyptic story too. Um, so, so when we talk about cultural divide, um, in the mainline church at least, um, two of the dominant ways we talk about it are in terms of social justice or liberation theology. Um, and you've been critical of both of those as deficient, not as wrong, but as deficient. Um, Is that word insufficient? Is that what you said? Yes. Mm -hmm. so can you help us? You know, how, how can we as Christians think about that in a more robust way? Um, when we survey a culture that's divided over everything. In a way, I'm a little disappointed to hear you say that I've been critical of liberation theology because I don't feel that I have. I don't really say much about quote-unquote liberation theology at all. What I try to do is to give examples of the ways in which communities, not just individuals, but communities can move according to the Spirit, as the Spirit gives us life and strength, to oppose social injustice. I think the church is called to that. Now, in the early days of the church, the church was small. I mean, extremely small, minuscule, and here was the Roman Empire. When the uh, Israelites were captive in Babylon, they, they, they were not able to move societies. They were barely hanging on. But we are still a quote-unquote Christian culture, not really, but, but that is our inheritance. And in the 50s when I grew up, it really was quite overtly Christian where I lived anyway in uh, Tidewater, Virginia. The, the teachers in the classrooms would teach us from the Bible without fear. And I do look, forward, look back with some nostalgia on that, but I understand why we can't do that anymore. Um, but what I would like to, what I try to do is to implot, that is to say, to show how struggles for social justice are part of the great plot of God's movement to reclaim his world from the power of sin and death. Now take this gun thing, these young people. Unlike the civil rights movement, which was overtly Christian, I think the greatest movement, communal movement of Christians in the history of the world, that would be my opinion. I haven't changed my opinion about that. Th these young people who are ready to take on They're ready to take on the government. They're ready to take on the NRA. They're ready to take on whatever comes at them. But it's not specifically Christian. I wish it were. 
but we don't live in that kind of culture now. However, I would say that anything that happens to bring us to our senses about these guns would be of God and that the church needs to be where that is. Now that's an example. Maybe some of you don't agree with that, but that's what I would say. So how, I, do, we, so how do we think about that in terms of... Apocalyptic. Uh, or, or just proclamation rather than exhortation. Oh, proclamation. Yeah, I love to talk about that because I really do um, worry about the fact that preachers in general in the main lines, no, not in the main lines. The main line churches preach about it all the time, except it's not really the gospel, the sermons that I hear. I don't mean to make too much of a blanket assertion, but I do find, my husband and I both find that we, we have a hard time finding good preaching in the main line churches. And that's a real, that's not a, a good thing to say or to feel. <laughs> we have had a hard time with that because we are Episcopalians and we don't like sneaking off to breakaway churches, but what bothers me so much is that, and I've written about this, and I've talked about this, and I get nothing but pushback. I've tried to model it. What I'm talking about is the way that we can preach the gospel and still incorporate a message about political captivity. I try to do that, and if any of you are interested in this, I try to do that in my sermons, which have all been published. I, every time I preach now, I have to write a new sermon because everything I've written, said, ever said has been published. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I try to give examples of people or groups of people, better groups of people, who have done small things but who have been witnesses for God's great movement of justice and righteousness. And you know the word justice and the word righteousness are exactly the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. That is so important. And righteousness is not just a quality about which one can be smug. Righteousness is a movement of the Spirit of God. And if I think that can be preached. And we can give thanks for the movements of the Spirit of God that we see. And they're not just movements detached from the political currents of our time. I don't mean that we should be telling people how to vote or preaching political sermons in that sense. But in a sense, every sermon is political because if we do nothing, that is equivalent to supporting whatever is going on, whatever it might be. And the famous example would be the Nazi era, but we don't have to look to the Nazi era to see how the silence of the church gives strength to the enemy. So there's a difference, so, so there's a difference between Christians engaging divisive issues in a faithful Christians must do X versus faithful Christians are permitted to do X, that in the freedom God gives us, we can participate and find the spirit at work rather than exhorting people to do 
X, Y, and Z. Is that what I'm I love saying? to talk to Jason because he has a way of, from his Methodist point of view, which you said you were not, you know, the least met. What was that you said? I, I'm just trying to get cred with them. Yeah. That's, that's all I was I thought that was doing. really funny. Um, Jason is really funny. Um, from, your, from the point of view of some of the Methodists that I know, like Jason, the Methodists that I know best are Jason and Richard Hayes and um, Will Willimon. And they're all You just made Calvinist. my day. That, that was, that's, we're, we're done here. They're sort of, <laughs> they're sort of Calvinist methods, Methodists. In other words, um, Jason understands, I think, that, that exhortation is a barren matter. Sermons should never be hortatory. Even the so-called hortatory passages in Paul are not hortatory because they are embedded in the gospel. It's a great mistake to say, oh, we've gotten to chapter 12. Thank God we've gotten to chapter 12. Now Paul's going to tell us what to do. That's a huge mistake. Um, it's all part of the great narrative of our bondage and Christ's deliverance. Perhaps bondage is the best way to talk about the apocalyptic narrative and include both atonement and Christus Victor. Christ is victorious over what has held us in bondage. And that means that he has stepped into the place where the powers and principalities, Satan if you will, sin and death, have wreaked their worst. They have done their worst in his tortured body. And on the third day, God raised him. The God who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And one of the things that do not exist is a redeemed human being. You and I are in bondage, have been in bondage to sin and to some degree still are, but not completely, because in us, Christ works victory. And that is so full of hope, and gives joy, and gives confidence. And you, after you've heard that kind of sermon, you leave thinking, oh, I can do that. I've been freed. I don't have to be full of anxiety anymore about how I'm doing. I can just go out and God's going to put a good work in front of me and I'm going to be able to do it by his grace. All those good works begun, continued, and ended in God. I'm quoting the prayer book again. All our works, all our works are begun, continued, and ended in thee, O Lord. Now that's hope, that's confidence, that's salvation. And that is the arc of the universe, that all our works will, begun, will be begun, continued, and ended in God by the power of the Spirit in Jesus Christ our Lord.
Fleming, speaking of the prayer book, uh, the most popular part of our podcast that we get the most feedback about are your prayers at the end of each episode. Uh, and he so, keeps telling me that, and it really makes me feel sort of anxious. He's going to ask me to say one. <laughs> I, I, I was just wondering if you could close us out by praying. I will have to throw myself on the mercy of God and trust that he will use me as he promises to do, not for myself, but for you, for the body of Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, this church is full of people who know you love you, celebrate you, praise you, and seek to do your will. Let any theological differences that might be among us blend together in one great act of communal praise today and as we leave to go home. Grant, O oh Lord, that we might be so filled with love for your Son among us as one of us, loving us into death and hell in order to raise us into his presence forever. Let this great and glorious gospel give us the courage that we need, the insight that we need, the faith that we need, and perhaps above all, the hope that we need to navigate these murky waters, not only of fire and flood, but of the danger to the soul of our nation and the soul of our world. Let us, Lord, each be vessels for your word. Let us seek diligently in the scriptures to hear your voice. Speak to us, Lord, speak to us and speak through us so that we may be witnesses, witnesses of the love and the victory of Jesus Christ, our precious Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Champion, and Friend. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you thank Fleming?